Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast for people living multicultural lives. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a Black woman married to a Spanish man raising three bilingual, biracial, bicultural children. I'm also a journalist and the author of the book, Same Family, Different Colors, Confronting Colorism in America's Diverse Families. And I'm really glad you're here for another conversation that meets at the intersection of race and real life. On episode 30 of the My American Melting Pot podcast, I've invited a very special guest to join me so that she can share how her very multicultural life has led her to be an activist for multiracial people and an entrepreneur who serves the multicultural community and the world at large. I'm talking about the one and only Sonia Smith-Kang. Sonia is a multicultural advocate who draws from her rich cultural heritage as an Afro-Latina and proud military brat born in Puerto Rico and then stationed on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. Sonia has dedicated her life to amplifying the voices of the underrepresented. She is the founder and designer of Mixed Up Clothing, the co-founder of Culturas, Multicultural Corner, and Mixed Heritage Day. A graduate of the University of San Francisco, Sonia is a registered nurse who lives in Los Angeles with her Korean husband and four multicultural, multiracial, and multilingual children. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Sonia. Hi, thanks so much. Well, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to have you here now. I've actually wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. This is season four, so it's taken me a bit, but um, it's particularly appropriate to have you on season four because the theme of season four is all about family. And our audience is a very multicultural, multiracial um, audience. And I just can't think of a more multicultural family (laughs) than yours. (laughs) I mean, you kind of like tick all the boxes. I sure do. (laughs) Plus, all of your work is really about multicultural families and multiracial, multicultural people. So before we like dig into everything, can you just tell me more about your kind of identity story? Like tell us a little bit about growing up as an Afro-Latina in Hawaii and then a little bit more about your current family, your husband and your children. Sure. Thank you again for having me. Um, I followed you for a long time and I'm so excited to finally have the opportunity to chat with you. So I would just say my my story is one where I've known who I was and known being biracial for a long time. And my family is a military family, so I was born on the island of Puerto Rico. And then we were transferred to Oahu probably till about um, middle school, was on the island. And it was just one of the the times where I just felt like there was so much diversity and you were just around different cultures. On the island, you speak pidgin. So there's, you know, that aspect of just different language and uh, foods and tradition. And so it was a really, really wonderful opportunity, you know, I was blessed to have. So uh, we left the island of Oahu and pretty much came to California, we uh, Los Angeles. And it was at a time where it was, you know, the scene was, you know, very fair faucet, you know, think uh, blonde, feathered hair, blue eyes, fair skin. And I wasn't. I had naturally curly hair, brown skin. And it was just a time where in order to make it in, you know, America, you kind of wanted to get rid of 
the culture so that you could assimilate. And so at a time where I was, you know, by, uh, I mean, I'm biracial and at a time where, you know, that kind of environment was happening, it was really challenging to kind of face that I was African-American and uh, Mexican-American. So I knew early on that I was different, really. And so that kind of helped, you know, mold who I was. I knew from that point on, I just knew that I was going to talk about it and knew that growing up, I was going to really try and figure out, you know, who I was, my place in, in America, really. Was there a moment, I mean, I'm not biracial, I'm Black American, but I grew up in, you know, very white spaces and I spent a lot of time trying to assimilate. And then there was kind of a moment when I decided it wasn't worth it because a bunch of different incidents had come up where, you know, it was kind of thrown in my face, like, you're Black, you're not fooling anybody. Was there something for you where you did try to assimilate and then said it's not worth it? Or were you just confident enough from day one that you felt like, you know, it was just your, you know, purpose to no, speak out. Oh no, yeah. I struggled with it for a long time. Even, you know, now there's some times where I wish I was a bit more confident in it. So going back to, you know, being coming up in uh, Los Angeles, I went to a predominantly, you know, Latino school and, you know, of course had uh, spoke Spanish and my last name is Smith, so that <laughs> all, <laughs> that automatically just kind of set me up as, you know, what is Smith and how does that fit in here in a sea of Latino surnames? And so take that into college where I swore I was going to, you know, find myself. So I kind of swung both ways. Like I just went pro-Black and, you know, what does that mean? And then I went to, you know, the Mexican side and like, what does that mean? And in each period, I could say that I loved learning about both sides. And then there was a time when I just said, but I'm also an and, I'm also mixed. And so I would say it wasn't well until adulthood that I could actually say that I started kind of getting into the groove of my mixedness. So you're getting into the groove of your mixedness. Uh, you're finding your African-American side. You're finding your Mexican side. And then you marry a Korean-American man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tell us yeah, that love story. <laughs> yeah, I decided to just keep with the mixed thing. And, <laughs> and, you know, I, as a registered nurse, I, my husband came into the hospital I was working at doing his training and we met, fell in love and started having children. And so... I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt one second. Yeah, he yeah. came in to do his training. Is he also... He's a, a physician. He's okay. Okay. And is he, he's Korean American? I just want he's to make sure. He's first generation Korean American. So he comes in, he's doing his training, we meet, fall in love and start having children. And from his point of view, even though he was raised in New York and diversity is is there as well, but he was pretty, I would say, insular into being raised as a Korean American first generation, which is pretty specific to the culture and what he was around so he, his point of view wasn't one of understanding of the diversity kind of issues that go on and maybe some of the challenges that go on with raising children. So in, we were very intentional 
I would say I led the charge in kind of being very intentional in our home with the items that we brought into home. I think your your listeners will kind of understand, you know, you child-proof your home, make sure your kids are safe, get on the floor, kind of, you know, get a glimpse into what they're looking at. But for us, I call it culture-proofing our home. And what we did, you know, where child-proofing is to, you know, safeguard the child's well-being Culture proofing is more of safeguarding their identity and making sure that everything that you bring into the home is one that uh, not only educates, but it also, you know, can be entertaining. So specifically, it was bringing in books and trying to find books because that's its own challenge, right, with characters of color Uh, making sure, you know, the artwork that's in our home or, you know, the videos that we're watching uh, resemble theirs and our reality, our multicultural reality. So we were very intentional with what we were doing to help uplift our children. So I'm curious, particularly from your husband's point of view, because, you know, you said he's coming from a traditional Korean home, What was the response, not just from his family, from yours as well, but what was the response to you guys getting married and starting a family together? Was there any negative responses from either side? So my side embraced uh, Richard and it was smooth sailing, you know, since. And from his end, I think there was a definite understanding and hope perhaps from his family's side of, you know, who they thought he would marry. And I don't think, you know, I, I fit in. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't it, an Afro-Latina it, it, from L.A.? Uh, no. Correct. <laughs> that was not the plan. And uh, the, <laughs> so I would definitely say that there were some heated moments, um, some strong conversations and uh, language that uh, kind of went down around the courtship and, and you know, becoming engaged and, and then ultimately getting married. So now I can gladly and happily say that we've come through the other side and are pretty much better for it uh, because it gave us all an opportunity to kind of do our own gut check of like who who is who and uh, what is what and what that means underneath. So it was really just having to break down a lot of their cultural biases that they had that I didn't think I'd be facing, you know, at that age and in so intimately with with somebody that I had I loved. So, you know, it was doing a lot of talking. It was doing a lot of them having to get to know me, which I think took time. And and here we are now. How long have you two been married? 15 years. And how old are your children and how many do you have? I have four kids, two children from a previous relationship, who is 27, my daughter. Um, my son is 21. And then I have a 14-year-old and a 11-year-old. So two boys, two girls. Oh, perfect. Such symmetry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in my intro, you, I said that your kids were multilingual. So what languages do your children speak? And how is that in terms of developing them to be more than one language speakers. Right. So, and that, that takes part of that, you know, in being intentional with our life, right? We knew that, that language was going to be one of them. And it was, I'm, if you met my husband, you know, he is just laissez-faire. He could just, you know, take something, leave something. He's very center 
And I'm like, no, they go and speak English, Spanish, and Korean. And, you know, so there was this whole, you know, thing around language that we knew that that's what they were going to do. And it stemmed from that time where I was telling you where being in a Mexican household and hearing the language and having to kind of question who you are that made you made you who you are. And, and one of those being language. And so I knew in having the kids that they were going to be around that. Um, so here in LA, we're, we're pretty fortunate to have schools that have dual language programs. So my children go to Korean as their uh, dual language program that they have here near us. So they hear Spanish from me, Korean from Richard's family, and then also have that coupled with being at school. And I'm sure that really helps them bridge the gap with their Korean grandparents um, if they can speak Korean as well. I mean, that's such a huge part of, obviously, um, connection, I yeah, think. Yeah, bridging cultures. is if, I Yes. Mean, and I know we we actually, were, our previous guest, we were talking about, you know, what some of the problems people still have with interracial relationships. Um, that was with Teresa Stovall, which I'm yes, sure you Yeah, so of course. she was mentioning that, you know, that people want to preserve their culture. They want to preserve their tribe. That's the word that she uses. And, you know, and I completely get that. And I can, I have several Korean American friends. And, you know, when we would, you know, have these fights about whether or not their people were racist or our people, you know, who was racist. And it wasn't, they were like, it's not that they're racist. It's they want their culture to continue. They want to be able to speak to their grandchildren and not have to translate. You know, they want to see, you know, their own culture recreated in the next generation. And I totally get that. And I can only imagine how difficult it is when your child cannot speak to their grandparents, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, and I can see how grandparents would be, it would feel like anger to be like, oh, I love this child or I want to love this child, but I can't even tell this child to like, you know, I can't take care of the child even if I can't tell the child, you know, don't do that or come here or anything like that. I can definitely see that. And I, that's so exciting that you guys have the opportunity to have them in school where they'll learn Korean, which is, I think, you know, generally speaking, would be a harder language to just, you know, have them take a class here or there or something. Right. Right. So again, I love that you are able to speak to us while we're talking about families because your family, you really have all these different cultural elements in one household, which is fantastic. So how did your family, how does your family inspire you to then go from being a registered nurse to starting a clothing line? Tell us about that. Yeah. So I actually, I started sewing when I was in seventh grade. My um, mother sewed as well, but this was at a time when home ec was still part of the curriculum in schools. But what I was noticing was that, it, you know, everything was pretty much broken up into the hanbok in the Korean culture or the, you know, wayaveras. But what if your child was, you know, multiracial, multicultural? Was there a way that I could kind of bring in culture, but use clothing as my vehicle to talk about it. So what I did was I emptied out my 401k. I quit nursing and I started sewing clothes specifically for them. And it was, I would source fabric from all over the world. And I'd kind of turn them into fun everyday wear, whether they were dresses or bloomers or, you know, little shorts for uh, my little guy. 
any of those kind of things. And each one, you know, had this story that was attached to it. And so I thought, if my children being multicultural, you know, were having to kind of think about this, there's got to be other families. So that's what I stopped being an RN and I turned into an entrepreneur. I started Mixed Up Clothing and it was the, or is the most satisfying things that I do. I just, I feel like I'm living my life's mission and that is to just constantly. And when I tell you constantly, it is, I'm always talking about diversity and inclusion and culture and identity and race. And I love learning. I love the conversations that started with the clothes. Uh, Somebody would say, oh my, you know, what is that fabric? And I said, you know, I would tell them, for instance, maybe it was a Kokeshi doll from Japan that I found. And then they would start talking about their culture. And I just found that people want to talk about it. They want to share. And when you kind of dig underneath, you just kind of realize there's more similarities. So that is mixed up clothing. Uh, Our tagline is, you know, building friendships through fashion and fabric. And so that's why I just felt like I'm moving in, in who I'm supposed to be. Now, I have to say that I'm a closeted entrepreneur. Like, you know, I write, I do podcasts, you know, I could say that I'm already an entrepreneur in some ways, but like, mm-hmm. I want to sell things, right? I want to make, <laughs> like I was, I told my mom after graduating college that I was going to make pillows and sell pillows. And she was like, but you can't sew, Lori. Um, can you at least think of something that you can actually <laughs> do? So my question, now, I'm saying that all because um, I am so enamored with somebody who says, I'm going to quit nursing and start a fashion company. So I mean, you said you'd always sewed, but did you sew enough to make clothing for, you know, a, a large group of people? Like how, what kind of a, what kind of learning curve was there? Definitely a huge learning curve. Uh, so yes, I started by sewing just for my children. And so at one point when, you know, the farmer's markets and the showcasing the clothing or, you know, pitching to boutique time of period happened, there was not going to be a way that I was going to be able to do that. And so I had to learn pretty quickly what it meant to be a solo founder of a clothing line. And I was lucky enough to get in contact with somebody who made samples and patterns and helped walk me through the process, which really shortened the amount of time it took me to get from idea to an actual product. What I used with nursing that I still use is that critical thinking aspect, right? We have to be able to triage and prioritize. And that's exactly what I do with starting and running the business opportunities that I have. You have to be able to solve the problem. And for me, it was, how do I get my clothing into more families who need to see this and to see their culture represented? And so... I put a plan together and I was downtown getting, you know, sewing contractors and getting patterns and grading and everything that goes into making the item of clothing that you wear a reality. And so learning curve for sure. But if there's a will, there's a way. So I'm curious then, was your goal to be like the next Calvin Klein for the multicultural community or was your goal to spark conversations through fashion or Maybe a little bit of both. I was going to say, yeah, sure. I'd love to be uh, both. And it pretty much is in line with 
for me, the living my truth and my mission is really important. And so for me, the ultimate goal is for representation. I want to be seen as the brand that sees you. Like I I see you and I see the different cultures that make you. And I think that's wonderful. And I want to showcase that. And how can I showcase that as authentically and um, that I can? And so that's what I want. And if there's the big fashion houses and boutiques and stores and, you know, the Nordstrom's of the world see it, maybe they would want to say, I see it too. And I think this community is really important. So let's have your clothes inside our stores. I think that would be a huge win as well. What has the response been? And give us a little bit of timing. What year did you kind of officially launch the clothing line? Yeah, it's 2011. We were pretty fortunate in telling the story in a way that resonated with folks because, you know, shortly after starting the line, I went on the Today Show to kind of talk about, I think it was Multicultural Mom Starts Clothing Line to talk about culture and fashion. So I think that was kind of the 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 time where it was like, okay, this can really you know, it was earlier than kind of the movement that we are in now. So, you know, I was so excited to kind of be able to start that kind of conversation. So there was that. And then we got into boutiques and that's like its own challenge because it is who is the receiving end of your story, kind of that gatekeeper that keeps you or has the opportunity to say yes or no. And they have to understand why it's important because some of the pushback has been, oh, why do you need that? Why do they need that? And because they don't look like me and they don't have those kind of stories and that reference point. So they don't think what we think, uh, we being the parents that have purchased mixed up clothing, is that they want their culture to be seen. So uh, we've had very good response and it's been one of the best things that's happened to me. It's so great to hear. And so it sounds like your clothes can be purchased in boutiques and they can also be purchased online. Is it mostly online in in boutiques? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there any plans to open a standalone mixed up clothing store? Uh, No, I don't think so. I'm pretty excited about doing, you know, the wholesale opportunities that there are and kind of getting them into a larger market uh, that way. So exciting. So of course, this is audio, so people can't see anything, but can you just give an example of maybe one of your best sellers or something that you like a lot that really kind of demonstrates what a piece from Mixed Up Clothing might look like? Um, Like I said, I source my fabrics from all over the world and I could definitely just talk to, I think I just mentioned the Kokeshi doll one, and that is a wooden doll from Japan that the farmers used to whittle out of wood. So it's got that round ball head and then kind of that cylindrical kind of body that I'm sure your audience uh, has seen before. It's this vibrant fabric and then the Kokeshi dolls kind of peppered throughout the fabric there. Just imagine that, you know, maybe on a fun skirt that you pair with the tank top and you're out the door. And I think those kind of things that make it not that you have to wear them just through, you know, maybe ceremony or ritual or, and I mentioned the hanbok being for the Korean culture, what my children also have, but that's kind of limited to special occasions. And so the mixed up clothing was more serving the purpose of kind of being able to wear 
your culture every day and having pride in the history of your culture. So I want to now just, I know that you are a serial entrepreneur and that you didn't stop with clothing. Tell me a little bit about Culturas and Multiculti Corner. Okay, so it was this, the trajectory is what I call it of how I ultimately landed on Culturas and I'll, and I'll try to make it brief. Uh, so we had the clothing line and then serving as president of a 501c3 called MASK or Multiracial Americans of Southern California. The community that I I serve is the multiracial, interracial relationships, transracially adopted and multicultural allies. So that's kind of the community that I serve. And what we were trying to do is not only educate and amplify the stories, but it was really to learn about others. So my co-founder and I of Multiculti Corner, Delia is her name, we wanted to do more. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to tour the ethnic enclaves here in uh, Los Angeles. And, you know, uh, so you have Thai town, little Ethiopia, Chinatown, uh, little Tokyo and, and so on, little Armenia. You know, we have one of the largest ethnic enclaves here in L.A. And so we wanted to take community members and go to those areas and kind of learn about the culture uh, with our children so that we were trying to face some of the challenges that we think that there is. And that's with not understanding another culture. So we tried to do that with events in these areas and for families to come together to learn about it. So. That's Multiculti Corner. And from there, we decided, or I was at this baseball game, uh, the LA Dodgers baseball game, and it was Cuban night or something, Filipino night at the ballpark. And my son said, is there a day for mixed kids? He he just blew me away. And I was like, no, but there's going to be. Yes, and yes, yes. So the next day I called the LA Dodgers. And the year after that, Delia and I with Multiculti Corner created something called Mixed Heritage Day. And each year we go back to Dodger Stadium and other sporting venues now and have a day of community recognizing mixed heritage And we were recognized on the field by our L.A. Mayor, Eric Garcetti, here for the work that we've done. So that was pretty exciting. And from there, we said, let's do more. Like, what else can we do? We had events. We had the clothing. We were putting together something where we were becoming this resource for other families And so we said, what if we had something online where we're able to bring events and give you know resources to families that want to find events, multicultural events near them? What if we took all the news from around the world that multicultural parents need to know and put that on a space? And then what if we brought in a marketplace for creatives of color, that being, you know, makers like me, mixed up clothing or book authors or, you know, other makers and creatives and gave them a a platform to sell their items so that parents couldn't go to one place to find news that they can use, community and commerce, which e-commerce being um, one of the biggest uh, sellers is to be able to find products that your family needs. 
And that is Culturas. <laughs> I am just, I'm so excited because one, it just amazes me when people kind of live their purpose. And I think it's really important to say that it's also really great to live your purpose and make a profit from it. In other mm -hmm. words, to see the value in this service that you're creating. I mean, service and goods for you because you're mm -hmm. doing it all. <laughs> um, I'm curious to see, again, because California is such a diverse state, what has been the response to your creating culturas and creating the Mixed Heritage Day. I mean, it's obviously was well received by the mayor and that you actually got it done. But what have families, like just individual stories have people said to you that made you realize that you're doing the right thing? Yeah, well, from an adult to adult, the, you know, comments that I've heard was anywhere from where was this when I was a kid? So those kind of things really tell me that it's needed. Almost like they were, some were even shocked, like that it wasn't a thing. And so those kind of things, like where it really tells somebody that, you know, you, you can have a voice and we're not just for mixed communities. I want to just be clear for me, it is really just learning about the diverse cultures that are our neighbors. And so the response has been even from, you know, our white allies that go to the page or get the clothes. They just want to know how they can help amplify and uplift the multicultural voice. So we're finding that, yes, there are folks who want to be intentional with who they are and living their purpose, but it's also come to be a, a welcoming place for others who want to learn about different cultures. So it's been really, really great. That's great. You know, it reminds me, the first time I went to a mixed conference, if you will. Um, I think it was in like 2007. And I was there with my book, Hair Story. And I was there because I was asked to speak about Black hair care to transracially adoptive parents. So this was a, I guess it wasn't wow. mixed specifically. It was more like a multi, yeah. multi-racial, multicultural family situation. And I really felt like an outsider because I was not mixed. I was not part of a transracial family, transracially adoptive family, excuse me. But then I realized that, and I think it was actually Heidi Duro, who I'm sure you know as well. Mm -hmm. um, she's the author of The Girl Who Fell From the Sky and the founder of the Mixed Remixed Festival. But she was like, you are not mixed, but, you know, you're raising mixed children. So you are part of this community. And I never thought of myself that way. Like, I didn't think that I had a place in this community but when you think of a multicultural family or multiracial family, many times it is the sum of two, I hate this term, but monoracial people mm -hmm. <laughs> who create a mixed race family, of sort of, so to speak. So I love that idea. What you're saying is that it's not like, you know, if you go to the Culturas page, it's not like we just have content about mixed race people. It is about culture because anybody who is part of some sort of multicultural family, and that can be defined in so many ways, you know, it's just incumbent upon us to learn about culture because we are our own little microcosm of different cultures living in the same space. And it, I think it behooves us, particularly who are in these families, to be more interested in learning about other cultures as well. But I think, like you said, anybody can find value in this idea of a multicultural lifestyle. I mean, that's what My American Melting Pot is about. For people who live 
crossing cultures kind of on a daily basis. And maybe it's not through your immediate family. Maybe it's through your ancestry. Maybe it's through your work, but that you want to be more involved in and more competent, I should say, in cross-cultural relationships. What I was finding in raising my children was there were just wonderful, you know, parenting sites from an African-American perspective or an Asian-American perspective. And so they were to, you know, to go back to that monoracial point of view was on these sites and which is great, but I wanted something where I could go to one place and learn about all that. For me, it always begs the question of what do you do when you are biracial or have children that are multicultural or whatever it is, where do they go? And so for me, Culturis is answering that question. And there was also, I insert my opinion to anywhere and any time. I remember a panel was put on and they said that they were very diverse in leading this panel. And so I went up afterwards and I said, you know, can we just talk about that? I feel like Yes, there was a Latino on the panel, an African-American, an Asian, and somebody from the LGBTQ community. And it was great, and it should be, you know, applauded. But there is another community you're missing, and that's someone who identifies as mixed race. So they didn't see that as being part of the conversation. We're one of the fastest-growing populations. Folks need to get on board with that. You know, the statistics and research is showing that there's only going to get more. And with this uh, upcoming census, I think we're going to find more folks who are feeling like they don't have to choose to be one, that they can be and and both. And so I think those are are important statistics. And I think that's what's what is driving me right now with with everything that I'm doing. It's really to get that. We are here. That was actually going to be my final question for you was to ask you what motivates you specifically. And I'm going to just tweak the question a little bit. What do you think people still don't get about the multiracial experience? Like, what do you find yourself educating people on still that makes you almost want to roll your eyes, but you don't because you don't want to be rude? (laughs) Right, right. And, you know, so I get this a lot a lot to where it's the question of what are you? And I know there's folks in your audience who are probably nodding their head going, yes, that is something that you get all the time. And so I would say my response would, you know, be I'm Mexican and I'm black. And then they'd say, but what do you feel more of? It always, always to this day sets me back and think, you know, what does that mean? You're trying to make me fit who you are or what your experience to this point has been. But right now is my opportunity to school you on I am both. So one of the misconceptions is for folks to think that we have to choose. And for me, what moves me is that I don't have to choose. And what my children know ad nauseum is they don't have to choose and they can be in their Korean and African-American and Mexican and, 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 and then they're all of that. And so what moves me is that idea of just kind of 
living who you are and not having someone question that for you or to you. And I mean, I think it's it really speaks to, I mean, I'm going to say American culture. I'm sure it's, I'm sure there are some people that are better than this and some people that struggle as well, but we just need people to fit in either or everything when, you know, because the conversation about, about gender is so prevalent right now, but you can just see there how much we struggle. Like if you're not X, then you have to be Y. And I think that's still true with ethnicity as well, because we're just hardwired to want you to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. And I know that so many kids, you know, you get to, it's usually in school, from high school all the way through college, where, you know, you get the affinity groups and you have to pick one, right? You've got to, you're going to be in the black kids, you're going to be with the Latino kids, which ones? You have to pick one. I think that is where anybody who doesn't neatly fit into some sort of identity box struggles. And I think that is why we have to continue to push back for people, again, whether you have parents that are coming from different ethnicities or you just don't fit into the quote-unquote stereotypes for your ethnic group, that's why we need to keep doing what we're doing. And I love that you are giving people a way to do that from everything from what they're wearing (laughs) to, you know, finding more content and resources and community where they can find other like-minded people. So thank you so much for doing all these different things and being that voice. Thank you. I appreciate it. So tell everybody, Sonia, where they can find all these great resources you have created. What's the best places? And of course, we'll put links on the show notes page, but just so that they can hear it in case they cannot wait and they just want to go right now as soon as they hear you. Yeah, I would definitely uh, have folks reach out to Sonia at culturas.us. They could email me if they have any questions. I am here really to serve. And I think that's what... I hope your audience hears www.culturist.us is our website. And then that's where you can all kind of find everything that we're doing, including Mixed Up Clothing is on that site. And our social media handles are either through Mixed Up Clothing or culturist.us. Excellent. So again, I'll have links to everything on the myamericanmeltingpot.com. And I just encourage everybody to check out all the content. And I love, if you just want a burst of of light, definitely look at the Instagram page for Multiculti Corner. It's lovely. It's absolutely thank lovely. You. So thank you so much, Sonia. I appreciate it. And we'll talk soon, I'm sure. I know our I paths are going to cross. Absolutely. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sonia Multipod community. I know I did. I really love talking to Sonia because I feel like we're kindred spirits. I feel like we have the same mission in life to spread the word about diversity and inclusion and provide resources and inspiration to live a boldly multicultural life. I'm so excited to check out more of the work that Sonia is doing on Culturas and probably going to order some clothing from Mixed Up Clothing for my daughter. Um, Her stuff is really adorable. I recommend anybody go check it out. So if you have some takeaways and you enjoyed the show, please let me know what you liked. Please let Sonia know that you heard her. You can go and leave her a message on Instagram or on her page on Culturas or send her an email. I know that, again, I will be continuing to follow her work and I hope you guys do too. Thank you for listening, Melting Pot community. If you enjoyed today's episode and found it valuable in some way, 
please take a moment to leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Although I have to say, if you leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, that has a little more value because it helps more people find our show. Those ratings and reviews matter. They really do. Otherwise, I wouldn't ask you at the end of every single episode to leave one. And if you don't have a lot of time, just leaving a rating really does help. Not only does it help people find us, but it also helps me know that there are actual real human beings listening. And that just makes me happy. And you want me to be happy, don't you, Melting Pot community? Don't you? So thank you if you can do it. I do appreciate you. And just a reminder, My American Melting Pot is coming out now every week for the whole season four. So that's from March 13th through June 19th of 2020. So expect a new episode every Friday. And if that's still not enough, you can find fresh new multicultural content on the My American Melting Pot blog. I post new things every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on the blog and every single day on the My American Melting Pot social handles. That's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find all of the links to the social handles. You can find our private Facebook community where we're currently doing a diverse reading challenge. Everything is on the blog. That's at myamericanmeltingpot.com. So I hope you check it out. I hope you find what you need. And again, if there's something you need and you're not finding it, send me an email at lori at myamericanmeltingpot.com. The My American Melting Pot podcast is recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. The show is produced by me, Lori Diversity Diva Tharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Tyler McClure, Paul Marchesani, Joe Patty, and Nick Cruz. And our theme music was composed by Sumi, always in tune, Tanoka. Thank you for listening, Melting Pot community, and always remember to live your life in color. Thank you.